You're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. How much do you know about personality disorders? Do you have people in your life that drive you a little crazy? How best can you manage them? Welcome to the Clinician's Roundtable. I am Dr. Leslie Lunt, your host, and with me today is Dr. Paul Markowitz. Dr. Markowitz is an assistant clinical professor of psychiatry at Case Western Reserve University School of Medicine and the director of the Mood and Anxiety Research Center in Fresno, California. In addition to having a PhD in biochemistry, he is a board-certified psychiatrist who has been the primary investigator for dozens of clinical trials. The development and treatment of personality disorders has been a career-long interest of Dr. Markowitz. Welcome, Paul. Hi, Leslie. Glad to be here. I'm looking forward to it. I can't wait to hear what you've learned about personality disorders in the last 30 years of your career. Actually, it's kind of interesting. I don't like the word personality disorder. I use it, too. We used to call schizophrenia and depression personality disorders, and we found out that they were chemical and structural anomalies in the brain, learned how to fix them, and they actually moved from being a personality disorder to a axis one diagnosis, something we can treat. And I think we're going to find the same thing with borderlines. It's already happening. That it's biochemical? Both biochemical and structural. It's kind of like trying to turn a Macintosh into an IBM. They're wired a certain way. And we can't change the wiring, but we can make them run more efficiently. And that's really not too much different than what we do with people with heart attacks or diabetes or asthma. Can you describe for the primary care doc out there who maybe it's been a long time since they've had psych classes, what exactly is borderline personality disorder? I should probably do the DSM diagnosis for these. It's a lifelong pattern, usually starting in adolescence, of mood swings, chaotic interpersonal relationships unstable self-image, impulsivity, suicidality, uh, usually self-injury, lots of anger and inability to control their anger and chronic emptiness. Primary care people are probably going to see these folks as coming in with multiple somatic complaints, migraines, irritable bowel, fibromyalgia, TMJ, PMS, neurodermatitis, restless leg syndrome. They're predominantly women, three or four to one, female to male. They may go off on the doctor for no reason. Besides having that two-inch thick chart, the clinician will start talking to them, and it's almost like their personality will change from one day to another. They also tend to have a lack of core of personality, their sense of self. The doctor may talk to them one day, and they're great, and then the next day it's like there's another person in the room. And that's usually how they'll show up. Now, these, of course, these people aren't only our patients. Uh, they may be in our lives as well. How might we recognize them there? Again, it's, it's an unstableness. These folks tend not to have any core identity. They tend to bounce from job to job. They tend to glom on to people a lot, and they tend to become whatever you want them to be for about a year or two, but unfortunately, that's not very good. You end up getting divorced from them after that. But they are pretty flexible simply because they have a lack of core structure. Not to name any names, but you'll see a lot of actors and actresses that have this because they can sort of make themselves anything they want to be for a short period of time. And is that why they always get into so much trouble, it seems? That comes with the impulsivity part of it. Like I said, the disease is very logical. They do exactly what they're supposed to. It's actually kind of cool because people don't look at the brain like any other organ. Whenever you have a flu, you would expect to have achy joints, vomiting, diarrhea, fever, and you say, oh, I'm supposed to have all that. It's part of the flu. But those really aren't thoughts. Those are chemical reactions in your brain. 
And the same thing happens with borderlines. They're supposed to have mood swings, chaotic interpersonal relationships, the impulsivity that we see. They're supposed to do all those, be suicidal. When they cut themselves, it feels good. That's why they do what they do. Very logical illness. It's logical if you understand the illness, but it seems completely illogical if you're on the outside looking in. Exactly. And again, getting back to the analogy of a computer, uh, Macintosh programs are illogical to an IBM-based system, and same thing, vice versa. But it's not our job as a clinician to pass judgment. These people are wired a certain way, and they're not going to change. They're, we're just supposed to get them as good as we can get them. It's really no different than treating a heart attack or diabetes or anything else, albeit they are more difficult to deal with. A lot of the clinicians we see actually feel that these people are put on their earth to torture them. They'll come in and the, the primary care guys will treat them for fibromyalgia or irritable bowel. But that's like treating somebody for strep throat because they have a fever, just giving them aspirin. And it's not going to get at the underlying disease. You look at all of those somatic complaints that co-occur, the anxiety, the depression, the mood swings, they're all the same things. And a lot now times they're getting called bipolar twos, which they also are. But when you start seeing the other things that go with it, the chaotic interpersonal relationships, the suicidality, the lifelong pattern, I would treat them like a borderline. Now, how do you develop borderline personality disorder? Well, a lot of theories on that. And, it, and to some extent, the bottom line is it doesn't matter. I happen to think it's genetic. They have some very interesting adopted apart identical twin studies where they took kids away from their parents at the time of birth, not as a sadistic experiment, but mom and dad were both really bad people and in jail because of things they had done. And the identical twins, even though they never spent a moment of their life with their parents, a very high significant amount of time came out exactly like their biological parents so that they were in jail by their 18th birthday too, even though they were brought up by good people. And we do see the disease running in families. Other people feel that it's a learned disease, that some type of trauma or other learning modem that our parents gave us or did to us causes the problem. I have a couple problems with it. On the easy level, things that we don't like, we usually avoid. Those same kids don't slam their hands in car doors or wear fur coats around in the middle of summer when it's 100 degrees outside. Uh, but more importantly, even if it did cause the disease, it would suggest that there's a biochemical phenomena going on in the brain, and they've done some PET scans and SPEC scans that show that. So either way, we need to fix it, and we have medicines that can do that now. If you've just joined us, you're listening to ReachMD, XM233, the channel for medical professionals. I am Dr. Leslie Lunch, your host, and with me today is Dr. Paul Markowitz. We are discussing borderline personality disorder. Okay, so I can't wait to hear this. So how do you treat it? Well, there are a lot of ways to do it. It's absolutely treatable. On a medical model, just like everything else, you have a physical problem and you do therapy afterwards. So if you need a coronary artery bypass surgery or you tear an anterior cruciate, you need to fix what's physically wrong and you do therapy afterwards, not before. In this particular case, there are a number of biological studies out that show not only that there is a chemical problem, but we can fix it in many cases. And then after you fix it, that's when the therapy comes in. But the type of therapy you do depends on the needs of the individual, but it's very, very fixable. About 10 years ago, I was a very, very avid golfer. And I joined a country club, and I'd never taken a lesson in my life, and my handicap didn't change. I was right around to 16. And I figured, well, if I play pretty much every other day, I'll get that handicap down. And unfortunately, it didn't go down. I wasn't very good. So I called up the pro after about a month and a half, two months at the club, and said, Leo, need a lesson. And he came out and said, hit some balls for me. Let me see what it's like. 
and I hit about 70 or 80 balls. I thought I was hitting them pretty good. And he came up to me a little bit then and said, put his hand on my shoulder and said, son, I can get seven or eight strokes off your handicap. And I go, oh, that was great. And I was in heaven because I just wanted to be under a 10. Then he looked at me and said, but there are only so many Jack Nicklauses in the world and you ain't one of them. And it wasn't a mean thing. He was just stating a fact. And I kind of view borderlines the same way. My job is to get their handicap down as much as I possibly can. If they're not very employed and they've been living on the street for 20 years, we're going to have a different outcome than if they're a college professor or a lawyer that has a lesser handicap, as it were, or a lesser stroke to start with. That should be everybody's goal, and it is for treating heart attacks or diabetes or asthma or anything else. We get that handicap down as much as possible. So this really is a medical model. So which medicines might you use? Right now, my favorite medicines, at least as far as ease, are either Effexor, XR, or Cymbalta. And the titration of the medicine is actually quite easy. What ends up happening in these individuals is, predominantly in women, they have pretty severe carbohydrate craving. And you just titrate the medicine up until the carbohydrate craving goes away. That's a little bit different than the nausea they get. Got them on 150 of effects of the first or second day, and they go, God, this, I was nauseated all day, but I feel better now. And, you know, after I felt better, I had a pound of chocolate chips. That doesn't count. They actually develop a disdain for carbohydrates. And what I do is I increase the dosages of medications every five days until that happens. That usually ends up being about 450 milligrams of Effexor and 120 of Cymbalta. We've published other studies, not only looking at those, but looking at nifazidone, uh, serazone when it was available, and you can still get nifazidone, and also uh, MSAM, selegiline, a monoamine oxidase inhibitor, all very, very good for treating it. In the past, we used Prozac and Zoloft, very effective medicines, but they do have a bit more sexual dysfunction and weight gain down the road, so they tend not to be as good a medication to use. They are effective, but since you're going to need to be on it for your whole life, we try to make something as compatible with your lifestyle as we can. Makes sense. But now don't you worry that if these people truly have some bipolar diathesis that you're going to make that worse with these very high doses of antidepressants? There's some worry about that, but that's never been borne out in our trials. Admittedly, they're small, but more importantly, they just had a recent study come out looking at the use of antidepressants. They happen to use Welbutrin and Paxil in bipolar patients. And while the antidepressants weren't particularly effective at getting rid of depression, they didn't cause switching to mania either. At a rock-bottom minimum since 1987 when Prozac came out, there's somewhere between 15 and 20 times more Americans on antidepressants than ever. And the incidence of mania, at least in my hospital and most other ones, the people that I've talked to, has not gone up. So I don't think these drugs actually cause switching. There's, there really isn't any data to support it. Plus, they work. Interestingly, in our double-blind Prozac trial, which we did in 89 and 90 in borderlines using 80 milligrams or placebo, we did have two individuals that became manic, and they were both on placebo. Nobody in the active treatment group did. So start with medicines and kind of decrease the handicap, to use your expression, and then add in psychotherapy? Then we go into the therapy, and it depends on the individual. The kind of therapy you need depends on what your situation is. If you dropped out of high school, because the illness was incapacitating, therapy may consist of getting your high school equivalency. If, on the other hand, you're having some marital discord because of the illness, it may involve family therapy. It really depends on the individual. But again, it's weird. A lot of the 
people will ask borderlines not to be suicidal or to stop cutting, and that's like asking a diabetic to lower their blood sugar by thinking differently. It's not really a thought when you're suicidal or cutting. It is a chemical demand reaction. You're doing exactly what you're supposed to. And it really gets back to the point of how we treat the brain. No one's surprised that a diabetic has high blood sugar and doesn't ask them to stop it if they're a type 1, but they'll ask borderlines to do things that they're chemically supposed to do, like cutting or being suicidal or having mood swings. Everything else in their life they can control, they already do. They put the air conditioner on in the summer, they wear a coat in the winter, they void uh, their bladder when it's full, and if they could control this, they would. In fact, in most ways, borderlines are 99% like us. It's just they have these kinks when the disease kicks in that makes them less functional. And the chemistry in the vast majority can be controlled so that they don't have these behaviors. I want to thank our guest today, Dr. Paul Markowitz. We have been discussing the diagnosis and management of borderline personality disorder. I'm Dr. Leslie Lunt. You've been listening to the Clinician's Roundtable on ReachMD XM233, the channel for medical professionals. For comments and questions, please send your emails to xm at reachmd.com. Thank you for listening.